Please open up your copy of God's Word this morning to um, Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 35. It's the next passage in our verse-by-verse walk through the life of Christ, a series that we've entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. But um, today I'm, I'm actually doing more than just continuing this series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. If you paid attention to the bulletin last week, or if you saw in the bulletin last week, um, you probably noticed that I, I planned on beginning a series today on financial stewardship. And, um, and the reason I had wanted to begin a series on financial stewardship as we went through the process of, of making the decision as a church as to whether or not to call Deemer back to be another pastor here at our church. Um, and, and just even before that, actually, there was... I think a, a need, a burden even on my heart to, to teach and to preach in our church body about how do we be good stewards of our financial resources. I don't want to teach about that, I'll be honest with you. It's not a fun topic to preach and teach on. But I, I feel like it really just has come to the surface that it is something we need to, to grow in. And it's a spiritual need in our church. And I'm looking forward to, to the Lord taking us through some passages on that. But as I thought about that and prayed and pondered where to start this new series on financial stewardship, I was reminded... That good financial stewardship begins with good worship. Uh, you can't be a good steward of your finances if we're not worshiping rightly. So as I look at the next text in the Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ series, I, I realize that today's text is the perfect place to start. Matter of fact, even next week's text, which is the next one chronologically, which is Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, would also be a good relevant passage on financial stewardship. But I'm not sure we're going to preach that one next week or not, but... So in reality, what we have here this morning is an overlapping, if you will, of, of two different series, preaching series. But for this morning, I want us to consider this next passage, this next event in the chronological study of Jesus Christ, the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we are in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. So please stand, if you would, as we read this passage. We're going to read down to verse 50. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's infallible and inerrant word. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon... Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. 
But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is true. It is perfect. It is pure. Jesus, we thank you for this story. Jesus, I thank you for the way you treated this woman who came in. And Jesus, I thank you for the way you treated me. Lord, I pray this morning that you would stir up our hearts with true, genuine worship. So Lord, we want to worship rightly. So give me a mouth to speak the the word correctly and accurately. Strike any error from my lips or from the ears of anyone that hears him this morning. And give all of us ears to hear what you're speaking to the church through the word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. My best friend in college, really in high school, elementary school, then high school, then college, and we're still good friends to this day. um, When he got engaged to his, um, well now his wife, and but the day he got engaged, he wanted to be a big deal. We, we had a whole thing figured out we were going to do. We, I, I helped him. I videotaped him proposing to her. And sort of to end the day off with it, he wanted to take her for a very, very nice dinner. And so, so he did. He went to the nicest, most upscale restaurant in Abilene, Texas. The choices were few, all right? And so he goes to, takes her to a place called the Petroleum Club. It was this really fancy restaurant on the top floor of the, one of the very few high-rise, one of the very few tall buildings in Abilene, Texas. And he, he takes her to the Petroleum Club and, and has a beautiful dinner, this wonderful, wonderful dinner. Um, I, don't, I don't know exactly what they had, but I know it was very nice because it was a very fancy, very upscale restaurant. He had the whole thing planned out perfectly except for one, one thing. The word club, my friend Tim didn't quite clue into what that meant, the word club. So they're sitting there, and after they've enjoyed this wonderful meal, now how they even made reservations, I don't know, but after they've enjoyed this wonderful meal, the waiter comes up and, and, and says to him, okay, I need your account number, sir. And my, my friend Tim says, account number? What do you mean? I'm just, I'm just going to pay for this. He goes, well, you have to be a member here to eat here, sir. And my, my poor friend, Tim, was like, well, we're not members here. And uh, he says, well, how are you going to pay for this? And so, so my friend, Tim, he didn't have a credit card at the time, didn't have a debit card. All he had was his, his checkbook. That's how he's planning on paying. So he pulls out his checkbook and the man says, sir, we don't, we don't t- take personal checks here. And so here's my friend, Tim, after getting this very expensive dinner, and he has, he has no way to pay for it. He's, he's in trouble. And so the waiter goes back and says he needs to talk to his manager. And so Tim and his fiance figure out what are we going to do? I guess at that point they're probably thinking, 
well, I guess we could roll up our sleeves and start cleaning dishes here in a little bit. They're, they're trying to figure out what's going to happen. And the waiter comes back and, and says to them, your dinner has been paid for. And he points out this man sitting at the table who had overheard the whole thing to uh, one table away. And he was, happened to be the president of one of the Christian colleges there in, in Abilene, Texas. He, this man has, has paid for your dinner tonight. And so Tim and Christy were, were very, very thankful. They, they thanked him like crazy. I know that they ended up sending him a thank you card. I know Tim actually ran into him later on in Abilene. And, 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 and when he saw him again, was thanking him again. Oh, thank you so much for getting us off the hook that day. Thank you for paying that debt that we owed that, that meal. Now, I tell that story to, let's compare it to a, 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 how it could have been different. Let, let's say Tim and, uh, and Christy were going to Taco Bell for their engagement, all right? That's not a good idea, gentlemen, all right? But let's say they're going to Taco Bell, and, and we had a Taco Bell right across the street from Hardin-Simmons University there in Abilene, Texas. And, and back then, you could get a Cholito, which they don't make anymore. Actually, it was recalled. It was relabeled the Chili Cheese Burrito, and then Taco Bell got rid of it. Ah, it's the best thing they had, and they got rid of it. Anyway, the, they just could get a Cholito for 99 cents. So let's say you bought a couple of Cholitos and a couple of Cokes, and and then he realized, uh-oh, I don't, don't have any money on me. And the guy behind him says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for, for their dinner. You know, this guy forgot his wallet. Okay, Tim may have been thankful to the guy or whatever, but it wouldn't have been the same level of thanks. He wouldn't have written him a thank you card later on. I, let's, write, let's write the guy in the line behind us a thank you card. He wouldn't have later, when he saw him in Adeline, gone out of his way to, to go up and say, hey, how are you doing? And, and thank him again for this. It would have been totally different because of the the debt that was paid. The, the $5 Taco Bell meal didn't compare to the Petroleum Club spread that they, had been, that they had enjoyed that night. And so this morning I want us to see as we come to this text, the main idea is simply this. The main point of this entire text is that those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have been forgiven much love much. Much. Verse 47 is the key point of this entire text. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Much love equals much worship. Conversely, little love equals little worship. So the plan today, in today's text, first I want to set the scene of what's happening in the story then I want to examine the sinful woman's actions and, and make three observations about what much love looks like. And then I hope to end the sermon by applying it to our context, our situation as a church. So let's jump right in. First, let me just say, say off the bat here, right off the bat, that this incident right here that we're reading in Luke chapter uh, 7 is different than the story you read in Mark 26 or uh, Matthew 26 or Mark 14 or John chapter 12. Those, there's also a story in those three chapters of the Bible about uh, a woman coming in with an alabaster flask of ointment and anointing Jesus, in that case his head and his feet, and her name is Mary, and that's a different story. Now there's similarities with today's text, but this is a separate historical event in the life of Jesus. So let's, let's look at this text, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Now, right there, up to this point, Jesus has been, been eating, at least in his earthly ministry up to this point, mostly with tax collectors and sinners. But in this case, he, he doesn't discriminate. He's willing to dine with any type of sinner. 
Even religious hypocrites who didn't recognize the extent of their own sin. Now, we don't know why the Pharisee named Simon asked Jesus to dine with him. Maybe he was interested in knowing more about the teachings of Jesus. Maybe he was considering being a follower of Jesus's. Maybe kind of like Nicodemus was. Or maybe he's just simply trying to trap Jesus. Maybe he's trying to uh, maybe just examine him a little bit more. and Find some dirt on this man who claims to be uh, the Messiah. But we don't know. All we know is that Jesus is in this, this Pharisee's house. His name is Simon. The, the Pharisee's name is Simon. The dinner like this uh, at a Pharisee's house like this would have been something of, of sort of a community event. In many ways, personal privacy is, is really a modern concept. But in Jesus' day, this meal would have been sort of a public thing. There would have been people looking in at the windows and listening into the conversation. There would have been people coming in and out of the house. So the fact that a person, in this case a woman, enters into the house while they're eating is not a surprise at all. But what is a surprise is the type of woman that came in. Luke gets our attention right off the bat, verse 37. He says, and behold, look, take notice, a woman of the city who was a sinner. So a woman of the city, a sinner, comes walking into the room. Now this phrase, who was a sinner, most certainly means that she was a woman known for her immorality. She was either an adulteress or a prostitute and probably the latter. So she, she comes in, this woman, upon hearing that, that Jesus was reclining at the table with the, at the Pharisee's house, she boldly, courageously squeezes her way through the crowd that's blocking the door and steps into the house of this respected religious leader. Now talk about crashing a party. Okay, she's crashing their party as she walks in. Everyone would have either been surprised or offended or both that this woman had such audacity to come into this special event. Now, just entering Simon's house was shocking enough. What she did next, however, would have caused a stunned hush to descend upon the room. And we read in verse 37 as we continue says that she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet. Now, you understand? Let me pause right there. We hear that and we think, what do you mean standing behind him at his feet? Well, he's reclining at the table. The custom of the day was that the tables were low and you would, you would eat. You would lay down on your side, put one arm, your left arm on the table, your right hand you would eat with, and you would recline and your feet would trail behind you. So she's laying, Jesus is laying at the table Probably a circular table with his disciples and some of the Pharisees all leaning up against the table. So she comes in behind him, and that's why it says she's standing behind him at his feet. And it says she's weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So, so do you see the scene that's happening here? Have you ever been in a situation where someone that just didn't fit in walks into the room? Have you ever been in a, in a religious setting, church or something, where someone comes in that just doesn't, doesn't seem to fit? I remember, and I've told the story before, in Abilene, Texas, First Baptist Church of Abilene, Texas. I, I rem, as clear as day, I remember a homeless man coming in as we were sitting there worshiping. This, this homeless man comes in, and he has his bedroll, and he has everything else, and he stinks, and he walks in, and, he, and everyone's staring at this man as he, as he comes in, and he he takes his seat. Now, First Baptist Church, Abilene, Texas, like most fast First Baptist churches, was the place that the, the 
people, if you wanted to be known in the Baptist community, you went to First Baptist Church, right? So all the college presidents and everybody else was there. And in walks this man who just didn't fit in. And what he did later was even more stunning because when the, when the, when the offering time came, he, he sat near the back by himself with his bedroll. As the offering time came, I remember them doing the offering place and there were several empty rows before where he was. And the guys doing the offering had decided they were going to stop right there with our row. Because we were back, I was back row Baptist, right? We're back there. And they turn around to head back towards the front of the church. And that man says, calls him over there and pulls out his wad of money and drops it in that plate. And there was a scene right there for us all to, to see something like this. Or, or perhaps it's more, more like the, the widow dropping her mite into the offering bucket there in the temple. But there it was, a, a display of someone who just didn't fit in with what the religious community said she should be going on. And so in this scene here, this woman walks in and what's happening here is just, it's flat out scandalous. But notice some things about Jesus. First of all, he allows her to do this. He could have stopped her, but he doesn't. Secondly, he's not embarrassed. There's no indication that he's embarrassed by this woman or ashamed to be in the presence of someone with, with such a checkered past. When I, when I read this text this week, it made, it made me think of Peter in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Peter's eating with unclean people, the, the, the Gentiles. He's eating with the unclean Gentiles and in come the, the, the Jews from Jerusalem. Probably some of them were Judaizers. And they come in and, and with Peter, upon seeing them, he, he separates himself from the Gentiles and begins to eat with the, the Jews again because he didn't want to eat. It was unclean for him to eat with the Gentiles, or at least it was so in, in Jewish culture. And so um, I, 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 this is the exact opposite of this. Jesus, Jesus is not embarrassed like Peter was that this unclean woman is not only in the presence, in the room with him, but she's, she's, she's touching him and she's doing this, this ritual that just seems to be scandalous to so many others that are watching. Now think about this too. Jesus, the only perfect and truly righteous man to ever walk the earth, he never acts in a self-righteous way. Jesus is the only perfectly righteous man who ever walked the face of the earth but never has an inkling of self-righteousness. He's therefore willing to associate with the lowly, willing to associate with the unclean. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus willingly identifies with sinners. That's why in verse 34 of chapter 7, we read earlier a couple of weeks ago that he is a friend of sinners. In today's story, we, we, um, we've seen in Jesus, as we've seen before, he's more interested in the internal heart cleanliness than he is the outward cleanliness. Ultimately, Jesus' reaction in this story is the exact opposite of Simon's, who is the Pharisee. The exact opposite. So verse 39, here's how Simon reacts. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw him, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet. Now, he, he's saying this to himself. If this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon reacts with self-righteous indignation. And in this thought of his, and he's thinking this to himself, he questions Jesus' authenticity. He judges um, Jesus' motives. And then he self-righteously is declaring himself to be above such indignation. Now, when the Pharisee says here the words touching him, okay, it implies more than, than what comes across in our translation. It's actually a very rude phrase insinuating that she had immoral purposes behind her touch. 
it would be similar to us saying, she has her hands all over him. It was a rude phrase. Simon also says to himself, she is a sinner. Simon, theologically speaking, he knew, as all the Pharisees did, that all people sin. But he believed some sinners were worse off than others. He falsely believed that he and others like him, through their outward morality and law-keeping, could put themselves in a position of being acceptable with God. So when Simon says that this woman is a sinner, he's referring to her lifestyle as a prostitute. A lifestyle that, in his mind, leaves this woman outside of the parameters of God's favor. So in light of the fact that Jesus is allowing, in Simon's mind, this worthless, irredeemable tramp to put her hands on him, he concludes that Jesus certainly couldn't be the prophet that everyone says he is. Ironically, in Jesus' response here, he demonstrates his prophetic power. For first of all, he knows Simon's thoughts. Verse 49 says that Simon said this to himself. Okay, and we also see that Jesus knows the heart. He knows Simon's heart. He knows this woman's heart. John 2.25 tells us that Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So then we read in verse 40. Jesus answers saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, Simon's response seems polite, but here in the Greek we can tell that it's Probably sarcastic the way he said this. Like saying, sure, whatever you say, teacher. It wasn't as polite as it comes across. And so Jesus, like Nathan with King David, tells a parable that's designed to expose this Pharisee's hypocrisy and sin. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, if you remember from some of our other studies, a denarius, a denarii, uh, was probably about a day's wage. Okay, so, so we can see that one debt is big, almost two months' worth of wages, but the other debt is huge, almost a year and a half worth of wages. Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Simon's response here is a reluctant sort of, I guess so, I guess the one that, that he paid the greater debt for. So then Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Now what has Jesus done when he told this parable? He has, he has exposed Simon's heart. He has just exposed the fact that Simon is ignorant regarding who Jesus is or what Jesus has come to do. Yet in comparison, the sinful woman, she gets it. Jesus exposes the fact that Simon doesn't understand the awful state of his own sinful soul, nor does he understand the awesome power to forgive that resides in the person that's reclining at the table with him. He therefore has no capacity to comprehend the love of Jesus and the love for Jesus that this woman has come to know. So then verse 44, it says, Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, He looks at her, but he says to Simon, so this is a way he's letting Simon know that he's going to be comparing the two. Comparing her to him. And in this comparison, I want us to examine three aspects of the extravagant love that this unnamed sinful woman had toward Jesus. And so that's going to be our three points this morning. So the one who has understood and experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, first of all, responds with, number one, unfeigned brokenness. Unfeigned simply means genuine. Genuine, unfeigned brokenness. 
Verse 44. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. This woman, who had a well-earned reputation as an immoral woman, walks into this room and immediately demonstrates that she is a broken woman as she begins to weep at Jesus' feet. Now, I believe, as we'll see later in the text, that this woman is already saved. She's already a believer when she comes into the room. When did she become a believer? We don't know. Perhaps she had witnessed one of Jesus' other miracles. Perhaps she had had heard the Sermon on the Mount. Or maybe, maybe she heard those words that Jesus spoke right before, chronologically, right before this event. Matthew 11, verse 28, when Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And she knew the only way that she could have rest for her sinful soul was to to be yoked to this man, Jesus, and for him to release her of her sins. Brokenness inevitably accompanies initial faith in Christ. Let me say that again. Brokenness inevitably accompanies initial faith in Christ, a brokenness that leads to repentance. But there's also an ongoing brokenness that marks the life of anyone who is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The first reason is that we as Christians, as we battle sin and learn to put sin to death, should be people of continual brokenness, living in the continuous yet gracious cycle of repentance and restoration. Repentance and restoration. Repentance and restoration. That's our daily walk, is repenting of our sin and experiencing the the joy of restoration. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And that godly grief that produces repentance, that marks the life, not just of when we come to Christ, that's not just our Christian experience in the beginning, it's our Christian experience throughout our walk. Is godly grief over the sins that continue to dwell within us. And continual brokenness over those sins. Romans 8, 28 says, We ourselves who have the, the first fruits of the Spirit groan, Inwardly, as we eagerly await for adoptions as son, the redemptions of our bodies. Part of that groaning is groaning over the, the, the tendency we have to be pulled towards sin. That, that propensity to wander. The Christian life is a life of great peace and joy in Christ, but it's also a life of groaning and struggle against sin so long as we are in these bodies. So 1 John 1, 9 teaches us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's that cycle. Brokenness, repentance, restoration. Brokenness, repentance, and restoration. Christians should be people who have an increasing awareness of their sin. As believers, we should be having an increasing awareness of our sin. You never get to a point, believer, that you have, hey, I know sin so good that I'm, I'm aware of all my sin. No. 
Your sin's happening in ways that you're not even aware of. In small details that you don't even think are sin right now. And that's the Christian walk is this increasing awareness of sin. I, it's kind of like, um, so, so if you go out, uh, let's say a kid has is, 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 um, been playing outside and it's lunchtime and mom says, come in for lunch. And kid comes in for lunch and, and goes and sits down at the table, is ready to eat his food. And why does mom say, no, 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 go, go wash your hands. Go wash your hands. Why? Because mom's aware of these invisible things on his hands. That may make him sick down the road. And mom doesn't want to have to be dealing with a sick child down the road. And mom wants the poor kid to be, to be healthy and happy. And so go wash your hands. The kid can't. I'm, I'm okay mom. My hands aren't dirty. No go wash your hands. The kid doesn't have the same awareness that the mom has. So as we mature in our Christian walk. It's like becoming aware of, of bacteria that kids can't even understand. They don't understand microscopic organisms. That's our sin. It's microscopic to so many of us until we, it comes under the, the, the microscope of God's word and we go, oh my goodness, I didn't see how filthy that was. That's our, that's our Christian walk. That's, how, that's what should be happening all the time. So that's that continual brokenness I'm speaking of. Brokenness is not only the mark of our ongoing battle with sin, though. It's also the disposition of a, of a sinner who recognizes the greatness of the one who has forgiven us of our sin. Like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is already a believer when he sees the holiness of God. But what does he do when he sees the holiness of the vision in the temple? He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He doesn't say, oh wow, I'm glad I'm not as bad as some of those other guys out there. Woo! If I were as bad as Josiah down the road, I'd be wiped out the moment I saw this. But thank goodness I'm pretty good. He he thinks he's going to die when he sees a vision of the Lord, the holiness of God. Woe is me. And so part of that brokenness is as we see and savor Christ, not only do we see our sin more clearly, we are just broken over the fact that God, through Christ, decided to save a sinner like me. And so we're brought to a point of of tears like this, this woman was here in this story. She is standing before the Redeemer, before the Holy One. So these are not bitter tears flowing out of dread or fear of vengeful judgment. These are sweet tears flowing out of awe and wonder before a great Redeemer. This is a unique type of sobbing, a unique type of crying, a unique type of grief that overtakes the man and the woman who knows his or her sin and knows his or her Savior. That's the type of grief that this woman is experiencing, the type of the, the, the tears that she's experiencing. These are tears laced with joy, grief covered by grace. Psalm 126, verse 5, we read this earlier today. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. I'm reminded of the words spoken by John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace that we sang earlier today, near the end of his life. If you know John Newton's story, you kind of need to know it to understand this statement. John Newton was a, was a, a, a really bad, blaspheming sinner. I mean, he was as bad as they got. He, he uh, became a slave trader. And became, actually, he was a slave himself for a while, and then he was a slave trader. He was a, he was a wicked, deplorable man. 
yet God snatched him up out of that lifestyle and, and broke him and made him a new man. And he became a preacher and he became one of the leading abolitionists that led to the abolition of the slave trade in England. And near the end of his life, he said this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Those are the tears that are flowing out of this woman. Matter of fact, I imagine that, did you ever see the movie Amazing Grace? Their rendition of this phrase that John Newton says, to, to whether he said it to William Wilberforce, I don't know. I, think, I don't think so. But when he says it in the movie, he says it with sobs. He's saying it through tears. I know I'm a great sinner, but I know that my Christ is a great Savior. Do you hate your sin, brother and sister in Christ? And do you love your Savior so much that it brings you to tears? Do you get choked up when you consider the cost of the cross? Do you feel a lump in your throat when you consider the holiness and the grace of Jesus? The woman here was weeping quite profusely, for we read that she, she wet Jesus' feet with her tears. So this is no little crying. This is deep brokenness. This is spiritual poverty on display. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So we read here in verses 38 and 44 that not only had the woman, was she crying and profusely on his feet, it says she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. Now this was another audacious display of deep love toward Jesus. But we need to consider how those other people in the room would have seen this. First of all, this was, consider, it was considered immodest for a woman to let down her hair in public. It was immodest for a woman to let down her hair for anyone other than her husband. So this action would have been seen by onlookers as disgraceful, even scandalous. But in doing this, the woman is communicating her total submission to Jesus Christ as her Lord. 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen gives us a little picture into the culture of what hair meant during Jesus' day. It says, if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. So what she is doing is laying her glory at Jesus' feet. This wasn't sensual. This was submissive. What she was doing was slave's work and doing it with her hair. Remember Jesus putting on the slave attire to do the slave work of washing the disciples' feet? Well, here she's doing the same, only taking it one step further. What extravagant love this woman is showing towards Jesus. But Simon, on the other hand, he, he loved little. Verse 44 says, Jesus here, he indicts Simon, verse 44, then in verse 45 and 46, he says, I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. Then verse 45, you gave me no kiss. And then verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil. It, it was customary in Jesus' day to, to greet a, a guest that you honored, at least, to greet him with a kiss on the cheek. And then you would arrange for his feet to be washed before dinner. And you can only imagine why. If you're reclined at tables, okay, and another guy's feet are right here, and then you're kind of coming this way, and, and you walked on the streets of those days that were not paved, along with all the other animals that walked the streets of those days, the stuff that's on your feet would not make you want to eat the food you're eating as you're smelling the person beside you's feet. 
It was very customary to, to have someone wash the feet, especially someone like a Pharisee who probably had servants in his home. And then also during that day, it was customary um, to anoint, especially a honored guest in your home with a little bit of sweet olive oil. But this woman, I mean, this man, he, he did not honor Jesus. The only exception would be if someone came into your house that was on a lower social scale than you, then you wouldn't give them these sort of treatments. So it seems that Simon had little regard for Jesus. He therefore didn't know what this woman knew. He didn't know who Jesus was and he didn't know the forgiveness of Jesus. Therefore, he couldn't love the way the woman loved. So the one who has understood and experienced the forgiveness of Jesus responds with unfeigned brokenness. But also we see in this text unreserved affection. Unreserved affection. Verse 45, from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Now, if the tears were indicative of brokenness, then the kisses are indicative of humble and reserved, unreserved affection. Okay, it, it was one thing to kiss someone on the cheek in Jesus' culture. Matter of fact, most cultures, even today, a kiss on the cheek is still an acceptable greeting. I grew up in Latin America. You, you kiss not the men, but, it's, but the ladies. You kiss, it was, it was very customary and very uh, polite if a woman came in the room to give her a kiss on the cheek. Okay? Some of you have grown up in Latin American cultures. That's the, the way you do it. I came back to the States. That's what I'm expecting. I go to college. I go to kiss the young lady on the cheek, and I about get slapped. All right? Because it wasn't the same culture. So we need to understand Jesus' day, a kiss on the cheek was part of the culture. Even the men would give each other kisses on the cheek. But this whole thing about feet, I mean, not even in Jesus' culture was the kissing of feet something that was normally done. Nor in Ecuador, by the way. We didn't kiss feet. This woman, by, by kissing the feet of Jesus, is showing deep humility and undying devotion and submission to Jesus. You know who did kiss the feet in those cultures? They would kiss the feet of kings. They would kiss the feet of conquering warriors who came in and would have those whom were conquered to kiss their feet. What she's doing as she kisses the feet of Jesus is showing, you are my king. You are my Lord. And I'm in absolute and total submission to you. And I love you above all other things. How often is our worship mitigated by our pride or worrying about what others think? And the reason I say that. It's because this woman didn't worry about what anyone else thought in that room. She walked in and she kissed his feet. In light of what she had been forgiven of, she was glad to put herself in a humiliating position. This was a humiliating posture as she sat and kissed his feet. And she was more than glad to humiliate herself for the love of her Savior. But in our day and age, how many of us, our worship is... is mitigated it's 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 affected by our worry about what other people think about what about, about what other people think of us and therefore it's pride that keeps us from being the type of worshipers we need to be now certainly our worship should be reverential and and with awe hebrews 12:28 says let us offer to god acceptable worship with reverence and awe but reverence and awe doesn't mean it should be cold and passionless Reverence and awe does not mean our worship should be cold and passionless. Matter of fact, I believe passionless worship is very unreverential worship. 
Prideful fear of men tempers good worship. It causes fathers to sing hymns about our Savior with tepid indifference, lest they not look like a man's man. Fear of being labeled a charismatic may keep others from from showing any emotion before our Lord. We fear men more than we're in awe of our Savior. We fear man more than we love Jesus sometimes. Which means that our pride is driving us and not our love for the Savior. The fear of man lays a snare, according to Proverbs 29.5. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now there is so-called worship out there in the church today that employs emotions that are man-centered and is devoid of any self-control. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about are genuine affections that accompany genuine faith. I think that worship that truly reveres, that's truly in awe of God, is worship bursting forth with Christ-aimed, spirit-controlled passion. Worship in spirit and in truth. How many times do we read things like this in the Psalms? And some of the things we've already read this morning from the Psalms. Psalm 35, 27. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say forevermore, Great is the Lord. When we know what this woman knew, our hearts are set aflame. And we worship with great passion and with great affections. Affections naturally follow brokenness over sin. Affections that are grounded in the work of Christ. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then later, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We need more People like this woman in our churches. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So I want us to see this morning that the one who has understood and experienced the forgiveness of Jesus does respond with unfeigned brokenness, but also with unreserved affection. And finally, With uninhibited sacrifice. Verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon had failed to anoint Jesus' head with the very common olive oil that was used in those days. Yet this woman anoints Jesus' feet with very, very expensive oil. First, it was considered an extreme luxury to have one's feet anointed with oil. I mean, I just talked about nasty feet a minute ago. And most of the time, people didn't waste good oil on nasty feet. But not only does she anoint Jesus' feet, she anoints his feet with very costly perfumed oil. Luke intentionally draws attention to the type of ointment she is using. In verse 37, he points out she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, common oils like olive oil were kept in open containers, but expensive perfumed oils were kept in little flasks that were totally sealed to prevent evaporation. It was that precious. So the the flask would be totally sealed. To get to it, you'd have to break it open. So to get to the oil, the alabaster flask had to be broken just as she was broken and pouring out her tears upon Jesus' feet. So this little flask of expensive perfumed oil had to be broken so that its contents could bless the Lord. Now the similar account of this passage of Mary anointing Jesus' feet, which is a different event, 
She also brings in an alabaster flask. And, we, and from those texts, we can see how valuable this oil was. From those passages, we read that it was very costly oil, 300 denarii. Now remember, one denarius is equivalent to one day's salary. So if you've got 300 denarii, that's like bringing a year's worth of salary and pouring it out on Jesus' feet. Simon wasn't willing to give Jesus even the common courtesy of a little common oil on the head. But this woman, in light of seeing her own sin and seeing her Savior, was more than willing to do something as crazy as pour out priceless oil on Jesus' feet. So what leads to, to such an extravagance, such a lavish worship, such courageous sacrifice, such open-handed willingness to let go of such a valuable treasure? Well, she had been forgiven much, and so she loved much. Verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now this does not in any way teach us that her actions or her outward expression of love was the cause of her forgiveness of sins. But rather, we see from looking at the whole text here that it was the fruit of her sins having already been forgiven, as I alluded to earlier. Both in verse 47 and then in verse 48, the, the word here that's rendered are forgiven, that word in the Greek is, we need to understand that it's in the perfect tense, meaning that her sins are already forgiven. Both the Holman Christian Standard Version and the New American Standard do a better job of translating this text. And they, they translate it, have been forgiven, meaning that she was already in a state of forgiveness at that moment. And therefore she loved much. Her love was flowing out of the state of forgiveness that she was in. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, her love was the effect of her forgiveness, not the cause. The consequence of her forgiveness, not the condition. The result of her forgiveness, not the reason. The fruit of her forgiveness, not the root. So Jesus continues, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now we're not to, to, to take that to mean that, that Simon didn't need much forgiveness. This is kind of like the incident back in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. When Jesus said this, he wasn't telling the Pharisees who were complaining. He wasn't telling them that they had no need of spiritual healing. Instead, he was making the point that they were sick, yet they failed to even see their own spiritual infirmity. So to here, Jesus wants Simon to see that he too has much to be forgiven of. Poor Simon has no concept of how indebted he is with sin. And that before him stands the only person who can cancel that debt. Therefore, he loves Jesus little. Simon needs to see, and so do all of us here in this room this morning. Simon needs to see that there are no little sinners. Friends, let us see that if we view ourselves as little sinners, we will worship a little Savior. Spurgeon said this, to many Too many people think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of their Savior. A right view of sin produces right worship flowing out of a new heart, worship with unfeigned brokenness, unreserved affection, uninhibited sacrifice. So Harbins, to conclude this morning, do you see how this ties in with our focus on stewardship that we're going to be embarking on? Proper stewardship of our financial resources, our treasures, begins with proper worship and proper affections. We must turn our eyes upon Jesus like this woman did, and then we'll quickly see how the treasures of this earth grow strangely dim. 
What was a 60,000 jar of oil when she's standing at the feet of the one whom she treasured above all other treasures? Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, it's not about giving. We don't give out of some debtor's ethic. It's not merely out of a thankful attitude. It's about being in Christ, being a new person, and therefore having new appetites. The genuine worshiper's love flows not out of a fear of punishment, or out of a desire for reward, or out of a sense of duty, but out of a new heart, with new affections, pursuing a new treasure. If we don't start there, forget any sort of stewardship emphasis. If we don't start there, true affections, new affections, new appetites, flowing out of a new heart that now treasures Christ above everything else, then everything else we do regarding stewardship would just be duty or guilt or whatever else. Let us become scandalously sacrificial, ridiculously sacrificial as a church. Let us lay down our treasure at the feet of the one who is the only treasure. Let us not be like the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 who laid up treasure for himself but was not rich toward God. Instead, let us, like the parable in Matthew chapter 13 teaches, be like a man who goes out and sells all that he has in order to have the field where the treasure is buried. Or like the merchant in search of fine pearls who upon finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The woman at Jesus' feet had found the treasure. She had found the pearl. And everything else was expendable. Everything else was going to be poured out for his glory. So let us treasure Christ by generously contributing to the needs of the saints as Romans 12 teaches us. Let us let there not be a needy person among us and let us be willing to sell our temporal possessions and lay them at Jesus' feet in order to meet those needs, as Acts chapter 4 teaches us. Let us hear the words of our Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Pastor Timothy was told by Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, to instruct the church to, quote, not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, and thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let us, like the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians 8, give according to our means, but beyond our means. Let our giving reflect our love, as we see later in that chapter in verse 8. I say this not as a command. But to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. You might become rich according to his poverty for your sake. For the sake of this unnamed sinful woman, for your sake, for my sake, Jesus let go of heavenly riches. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In light of such lavish forgiveness... In light of such a treasured Savior, should we not worship lavishly? 
But to conclude our sermon this morning, and I'm almost done, verse 48 says this. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? They knew, theologically speaking, only God could forgive sins. So in verse 48, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Christians, let us worship this morning and let us worship throughout the week. And let us go forward as a church worshiping with unfeigned brokenness, unreserved affection, and uninhibited sacrifice. If you're not a believer here this morning, if you're a non-Christian here in the room this morning, let me invite you to come and see and Savior Jesus Christ. Who is this who even forgives sins? Oh, friend, he is the Son of God. And he offered himself up to pay for the sins of his people. He took his Father's wrath. And on a bloody cross, for our sake, he died. And then he was buried. And then he triumphantly rose again. And in doing so, he canceled the debt of sin that stood against us. And so he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. But how are we to draw near? We are to draw near by faith alone. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. So friend, I encourage you to put all your hope, all your trust, all your weight in Jesus Christ to forgive you and to make you right with God. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So come to him, and it is my prayer that this morning he might say to you the same thing he said to this woman. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm the first to admit that my passion for you and my affections for you, they wane. They seem to come and go with the circumstances of life. Because as I still reside in this sinful body, my eyes and my heart and my mind are, are drawn toward the treasures of this world. Whether they be pride, prideful treasures like the attention of man, the applause of people. Facebook likes. Oh God, help us to let go of such foolishness. But there's other treasures. Whether it be money, homes, cars, comfort. Father, help us to be willing to let go of whatever we need to let go of so that we can hold on to you better. Jesus, let us treasure you above everything else. And so that $60,000 jar of oil sitting beside us is no longer our security blanket. Instead, you are. And all of our hope, all of our faith is in you alone. So let us break the neck of that jar and in the process be broken people and pour out ourselves and pour out our possessions and pour out our passions on you alone. Jesus, I'm reminded of, of when you restored Peter and you asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, yes. But the third time, Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Father, if there's anyone else in this room here this morning that feels like Peter did, the way I feel even this morning. I've, I've sinned so much this week. I've messed up so much. Jesus, I need you to look into my heart. 
Because I know my actions don't show that I love you sometimes. So look into my heart. See what's there. Fix what needs to be fixed. And restore me. Restore all of us. Let us be people that are continually experiencing brokenness. So we might continually experience restoration. The gentle restoring hand of you, Jesus, our Savior. So we love you. We thank you. Our love can be stronger. Our affections can be purer. So Jesus, we need your help. Holy Spirit, work in us this week. Do a work in our hearts. Make us the people you want us to be. And Lord, if there be anyone here who does not know the love of Jesus, they're like Simon, coldly sitting, eating their food. Can't even give the common courtesies to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd take that heart of stone, as Mark prayed earlier, and change it into a heart of flesh. And for the first time, may they have affections bubble up in them so that they'll come and profess Christ as Lord, kiss his feet. And by faith, faith in him, they'll experience forgiveness of their sins and salvation forevermore. So that's my prayer this morning, Lord. Be with us now as we continue to sing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.